Please open your Bibles to the 19th Psalm, Psalm 19. And we will begin our study of this wonderful, wonderful psalm given to us by the Lord in His Word. A very familiar psalm, I trust, one that I've heard probably, I've probably heard more sermons in Psalm 19, back from my days in college and seminary, than any other psalm. Very familiar, very rich, very sweet and instructive. Let's begin by reading the entirety of Psalm 19, all 14 verses. Psalm 19, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right and rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep your servant also back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, to the choir master. Let's pray. Lord God, you have displayed your glory all around us in all of creation. Moreover, you have revealed yourself in your word with which we have in our own hands here today. Lord, it is my prayer that as we study this psalm about your gracious self-revelation, that we would respond rightly, that our hearts would respond the way David's does as he contemplates such things, and that in doing so, our love for you, our worship for you, our hatred of our sin, our focus on serving and pleasing you would rise and be refined and be strengthened. Oh, Lord God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Have your way with us. Establish your word in our hearts and cause it to bear much, much fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the interesting things about thinking about God is that definitionally, God is outside of creation. As we understand God, the concept of a creator God, he is not part of the creation. There are are versions of, of, of religion that do view God as part of the creation, and we refer to those as pantheism. But no, God is the creator, and that puts God outside 
of the creation, which, which begs a question you may not have thought of. If God is outside of the creation, then how can we, who are limited to, we, we cannot get outside of the creation, and if God is outside of the creation, then how can we know anything about him? How can we even know he's there? I'm sure you have friends, friends who ask these questions, how can I know there's a God? How can I be sure there is a creator? And one of the things we need to recognize is that any approach to reach the knowledge of God that starts with me is fundamentally flawed. We're we're back to that problem of I'm in the box of creation. And, And as much as people attempt to do that, and you'll hear things like, well, I like to think of God this way, and I like to think of God that way, that's very useful pieces of self autobiography, but it does little to tell us what God is like. I remember sitting with, with a friend of a friend as, as she laid out to me her understanding of God and how things worked. And at the end of the description, and it was quite complex and fascinating and, and bizarre, I said, well, that's, that's, that's really neat. That's interesting. What is your reason for thinking that what you've just said correlates to what is? What, what, what reason do we have to think that just who we want to think God is? Why should that have any bearing on who God is? And the answer is there is no reason. The, the, the frightening or humbling concept and conclusion we come to is that unless God chooses to disclose himself, unless God chooses to make himself known, we cannot know him. We're part of the creation. He's outside of the creation. He is transcendent. He transcends the created order. And so the first humbling realization we get is that we are completely dependent on him to make himself known to us if that is something he chooses to do. We've got to give up any attempts of, well, I think God's this way or I think God's that way based simply on what pleases me. We read in the Bible that men have always been fashioning God in their own likeness. They continue to do so. Some people also attempt to use this, how can I know there's a God, as an excuse as a reason to escape obligation and fealty to God. I mean, after all, I, I, I don't know there's a God. If only God would come down and have a cup of coffee with me, I've heard people say before. This psalm answers that question as well. This, this psalm announces good news. The good news of Scripture on every page, and implicit in the fact that there are pages, is the God who is, is a God who wants to make himself known. The God who is has revealed himself. The God who is has condescended down to communicate to us, to make himself known to us, which leads to the the great question, how will we respond to that? You hear people talk about revelation. That's just another way of talking of God's self-disclosure. God setting aside his right to privacy and making himself known, revealing himself to us. God has done that, and David in this psalm examines God's self-disclosure. First, we're going to see in the world, and then we're going to look at more specifically in his word, and then we're going to ask the question, how ought we to respond? Because that, that really is the issue. In most of the expositions of this psalm that I've, I've sat under, there's a tremendous focus on verses 7, 8, and 9, which are wonderful passages um, ex- explaining in detail the power significance, the perfection, the beauty of the word. And we'll look at that, but I want to look at the movement. I want to look at how David, first contemplating the sky and the sun, moves then to contemplating this book, and how he gets his heart to the point where it begins uttering the cries of the very end. Because you'll notice there's a marked difference 
in the last 12, in in verses 12 to 14. The rest of the psalm is declaring truth. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. And there's a shift in the writing style to a prayer request. You see that in verses 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let not have dominion over me. These are petitions. These are requests. So the first 11 verses of the psalm are expounding truth. This is what is. This is what is true. This is what God has done. And then in verses 12 through 14, David responds. And what I want to get is how do the truths that he considers, first looking at natural, the world around us, then looking at Scripture, how do those truths cultivate, shape, direct our hearts so we can respond like David? Because remember, the Psalms are roadmaps for prayer. We get to listen in as godly people talk to God. So we get to listen in as David, man after God's own heart, contemplates the glory of God's creation, the glory of God's word, and then we see what a righteous, spirit-filled heart responds to that. We want to do the same. Our prayer is that God would get us to the point where the requests that David makes in verses 12 to 14 are the very requests of our heart. Sadly, there are other ways to respond. We'll consider those. The scriptures give us some examples of some other responses. So as we consider this, that we are ultimately totally dependent on God to make himself known, then let's look to where David looks to of how God has made himself known. Is there a valid excuse for the unbeliever, the agnostic, that I just don't know there's a God? I think we'll see the answer to that is a firm no. And David is emphatic in the first four voices, verses, verses. Um, as we look at point one, God's general self-disclosure in his world. God's general self-disclosure in his world. Now let's just read the first six verses, actually. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor other words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its sight. Now, in this section... You can see two subsections. First, um, we're going to look at the continuous proclamation of the skies above. And then at the end of verse 4, specifically, David zeroes in on the sun. We've had Psalms looking at the stars. David's going to take some time looking at the sun in particular, verse 4, 5, and 6. As we look at God's general self-disclosure in his world, or general revelation. Now, we need to stop here and define the term general. When, when Bible students, theologians, people speak of general revelation, what they mean is that revelation, that self-disclosure of God given generally, without exception, to all people. General revelation. It's general. It's, it's there for everybody, without exception, without distinction. Everyone has access in fact, we'll see that we have more than access to this revelation. That's in contrast to specialized or special revelation. Not everybody has a Bible. This word, even though it is intended and offered to all, has not actually been received or reached all. It's one of the reasons why missions and frontier missions is so important. 
But David is looking at God's general revelation and this notion of a general character is unescapable in these verses. What we see here is the continuous proclamation of the skies above. Notice, notice the words. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. You getting the point here? The creation around us is constantly, continuously, like a raging river, a waterfall, declaring, pouring out God's glory. Declaring, speaking. These are linguistic terms. Not that it's audible, not that, that words are actually coming out, but in that same context, communication, revelation is, is happening, and it's happening continuously. This isn't something that just happens at a beautiful sunset. This isn't something that just happens on one of those gorgeous starry nights. Yes, it does, but, but it's emphatic. This is continuous. They're declaring, they're proclaiming day to day, pours out speech, night to night, whether it's day, whether it's night, whether it's morning, whether it's evening, whether it's sunny, whether it's cloudy, whether it's a thunderstorm that shakes my whole house like last night, adding some occupants to my bed, (laughs) or whether it's a glorious late autumn day as it is now, it all is declaring this glory. God's creation does this. I mean, have you ever stopped to consider the the immensity? We we thought of this last week, the absolute immensity of the universe that God made. Now, in Genesis chapter 1.14, God tells us one of the primary reasons he made the stars. Genesis 1.14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate day from night and then let them be signs for seasons and for days and for years. The stars exist in large part for us so that we can know the seasons of the year, the days, the months. Have you considered just how ridiculously huge, expansive, intricate, and wonderful the calendar and clock that God put in the sky for us? I mean, really, if you think about it, if if all God's trying to do is let us know the days, the months, the seasons, the years, a handful of stars would do the trick, right? Right? You have the January star and the February star. and the, You get to throw in the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays. But not, not the crazy amount of stars that we have. And last week we looked at just how many stars there are. Well, we learn in this psalm, one of the things God is doing, in addition to graciously allowing us to know this times and seasons, is he's putting his glory on display. I mean, what a God. What a God who speaks and all this around us comes into existence. And whereas the, the sky is in, in David's mind, he's considering all of God's creation. We see that at the end of um, verse 1. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So David's looking at exemplars, specifically the sky and then the sun, but what we're looking at is all of creation declaring God's glory. This is a continuous, ongoing revelation. Everywhere you go, this podium, those lights, this seats, the floor, the the birds, the grass, the sky, it's all saying there is a glorious God constantly, constantly. It declares his glory and proclaims his craftsmanship or his handiwork. But one other thing is stated here. Not only does this go out generally, it is understood. The communication occurs. Just keep your thumb here, turning your Bibles to Romans 1, where Paul makes this point even more emphatically. Although it's said here in verse 3, 
God not only has given himself a witness, as Francis Schaeffer says, he is there and he is not silent. Not only has he given us an indication of himself, but he has made sure that it is heard and understood. And there's a subtle distinction here that's that's critical to get. It's one thing to say, we have put a clock up in the back of the sanctuary. We have, so that I can know when I'm running late. And if you care to turn and look, you can see what time it is. We could say, we've put up a clock so anyone who wants to know what time it is can know what time it is. If you don't know what time it is, you have no excuse. You could just turn and look. That's one thing. And it's true. It's, the information is there. But look at what Paul says in Romans 1. He, he made, goes a step further. Romans 1, 18 to 20. And as Paul begins his explanation of the gospel in Romans, talking about how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, he first goes to a different revelation, God's anger. And we learn what God is angry at. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does that mean? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made through they are without excuse. Do you get what Paul's saying? It's the difference between saying, hey, you have no excuse for not knowing what time it is because if you cared to look, you could see the clock. It'd be the difference would be if every one of you upon coming in, I saw you stop, look up at the clock, take a note, okay? It's, it's not just that it's there and you can know. General revelation isn't the stuff that we can discover about God out there. General revelation is the stuff we do know. It's what we do, in fact, know. Not what can be known, what is known. Paul, making it clear, God has shown it to them. It has been seen. So they're without excuse. Go back to Psalm 19. That's the point, I believe, that David is making in verses 3 and 4. Not only is this revelation continuous and ongoing, but it has been understood. The, the one speaking has been heard by the one spoken to. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Now, admittedly, verse 3 is a bit difficult to translate. And if you have different translations, some of the translators take it different ways. I, I, I agree with Calvin and Luther and their understanding of this. What, what I think verse 3 is saying is this, that God's revelation of himself in nature and in the created order transcends and makes it across every linguistic and every cultural divide. In other words, as if to say, there is no speech nor their words who have not heard this voice. That would mean he's saying in verse 4 the same thing again, poetically, in, in, in comparison. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. David's point is this. Not only is the creation declaring this continually, day and night, morning and evening, it's reaching everywhere. And it's not a tribe, there's not a tongue, there's not a language group who don't get it. There's no language barrier, no cultural barrier for this revelation. This isn't a revelation for Westerners only or Easterners only. 
first world countries only. This is, a, this is a speech and a communication that transcends all of that. It goes out, as Paul says, so that we are without excuse. Because with knowledge comes responsibility. Which is, of course, why people want to pretend they don't know God exists. Because then they wouldn't be accountable to him. They wouldn't be accountable for that knowledge. And David marvels at the way that creation declares God's glory nonstop. And if we just stop and think about it, we, just, we, we live on a hunk of rock spinning around the sun at thousands of miles an hour while it itself is spinning on its axis, and we're sitting inside of a nice air-conditioned room with lights. And it's just marvelous, this world God's created. Whether it's looking at something as small as a flower or a blade of grass or the movement of the constellations in the sky, God's world praises him. God's world declares his glory and his power. Now, it doesn't fully reveal him and who he is. It's not an exhaustive revelation. That's one of the reasons why David's going to move to the scriptures next, because its content is limited, but the creation lets you know there is a God, and he is powerful, and he is a craftsman, and he is an artist, and he has majesty, and he has glory. That is known to all. Now, Paul says we, we do, in fact, try to hold that down. We do, in fact, try to ignore that. But understand, everyone knows this. And when you stand before God, and I say this a lot of times to people when I'm trying to witness, share, share the gospel, I say, look, if you're counting on the fact that you're going to be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know, I couldn't be sure, that, that will provide no excuse, that will provide no escape. We know there is a creator God. We can, we can convince ourselves otherwise. We can talk ourselves out of it. We can come up professing to be wise. We can come fools, and we can exchange God's glory. We can, we can tell ourselves, well, it's not so clear. And when we stand before God in judgment, he will say, you knew, and we will bow our heads and say, yes, we knew. Now, this can be something we glory in, as David does here, or this can be something that frightens us. Perhaps a response be both of those. Because the second half of this is he focuses on the sun, the continual circuit of the watching sun. We, we see a couple other things. First, contrary to many Canaanite religions, or even religions of our day, the sun is not a god. Many religions have worshipped the sun. We have one of our days of the week named after the sun. We, today is, after all, Sunday. In fact, most of our days of the week are named after gods of various religions. Odwin's Day, Thor's Day. I don't know how the Norse got so many days of the week in there, but they did. But today's Sunday. And what does David say? Is the Son of God? No. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. No, the sun is part of God's creation. The sun is God's gracious and faithful tool and instrument on our behalf. The sun is not a god. The sun is not to be worshipped. The sun is the tool, the instrument of the God of all creation. God has fashioned this world for us. He has got every blade of grass every cloud in the sky, constantly declaring his glory to us. He's given us the sun. And, and, and David likens the sun to a bridegroom who's eagerly bursting forth from his pavilion. The celebration of the marriage. Or like a strong warrior in battle running his course. The point is this. God's instrument, God's tool, God's servant, the sun, gladly, joyfully, faithfully does what God calls on him to do. This is personification. The sun is not a person. Um, 
but it's poetic, just, just to be clear. The Son is God's instrument and tool. The Son faithfully does what God requires the Son to do. And this is a grace to us. Day after day, the sun rises, the sun sets, the earth turns. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the other end of them. But then, notice the end of verse 6. There is nothing hidden from its heat. And David introduces now the thought that this creation which declares God's glory is also a creation watching this God who can declare his praise and glory everywhere is a God who sees everywhere. There is no escaping. There is no hiding from this God. There is no hiding from this knowledge. There is no hiding. Wherever you go, the deepest hole, the darkest corner, the shadows cry out, there's a great God. You cannot escape it. And so David then transitions from his study of general revelation to, to, to his need, our need, that we, we need to know more. If all we could know is what the creation tells us, we know there's a God. We know he's glorious. We know he's powerful. We know he's mighty. We know he's creative. We know we cannot escape him. Perhaps already David's thoughts are going to, he may not entirely be happy with how I'm living my life. It's not sure. He gets there eventually. At some point in this psalm, that's David's thoughts start going there, but certainly introducing, and I can't escape him, and I can't get away from this. Now the need to know him more fully. See, natural revelation is limited. One of the, one of the observations that the students of Psalms have noticed is, is in the first six verses, the, the word for God is Elohim, which is a general term for God, Elohim. Starting in verse 7, we talked about this last week, you see Lord in all caps. That means the, the Hebrew text has the divine name, the name revealed by God to Moses at the burning bush, what we best guess throwing the vowels in as Yahweh or Jehovah. And that takes over for the rest of the psalm. The law of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The rules of the Lord. And very down in the last verse, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And some people have suggested, well, maybe these are two psalms put together. I don't think so. What David's showing is you cannot know God as Yahweh as the covenant God from nature. You can know him as the creator. You can know him as the one who has authority. You can know the one, him as the one who is powerful and mighty and resplendent in glory. But you cannot know him savingly. You cannot know him in his gospel just from creation. As powerful a witness as creation is, it is a limited witness. And if we want to know this God, this God who declares himself, this God who we cannot escape, we need to go to a specialized revelation, a a more narrow revelation, a, a deeper and broader revelation. Point two, we need to go to God's special self-disclosure in his word. God's special self-disclosure in his word. And again, special just means specialized. The, the distinction here is everybody receives the testimony of creation. Everyone hears it and understands. Even those who claim to not believe in God only do so after suppressing that knowledge. Everyone is accountable for that knowledge. But if you want to know God as a covenant God, if you want to know God as he has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, you, you need to turn to the law of the Lord. That's where David turns his thoughts now to the special self-disclosure of God and his word. Two points. 
the attributes of Scripture and the appreciation of Scripture, verses 7 through 9. And here, of course, is that bundle of, of rich description of God's Word. You'll notice in verses 7 through 9, a different word, a revealing name of Scripture, is given differently. Six times, six different names for God's Word. In every case, an enduring quality of Scripture is given. So the law of the Lord is perfect, or the testimony of the Lord is sure. And then in four of the six examples, we see the powerful effects of the Scripture on us. So let's just quickly sort of work through these. The first, the law of the Lord is perfect. Word for law there is Torah. It's amazing when you think about this, the praise David gives us is David is referring to the books of Moses. I mean, we have so much more scripture, so much more revelation, the New Testament, and David is praising and extolling the Torah. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's complete. That's the concept. It's complete. It's full. It's whole. Reviving the soul. And this is where we see the contrast between the power of God's word in his written word and God's word in the creation. The the word in creation is general. It goes to all men everywhere. And by the way, one of the ways that we can know the scripture is God's word, we've talked about this um, two years ago in our series on biblical inspiration and inerrancy, is that we hear the same voice in the pages of this book that we hear in the creation around us. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. How can you know the Bible is the word of God? Because the same voice speaking all around you in creation is the same voice you hear here. Same voice you hear here. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's whole. It's complete, without blemish, lacking nothing. And amazingly, this word, this law, gives life to dead souls. It's the testimony of Scripture again and again. God, according to James, brought us first as, forth as a kind of first fruits by his word. First Peter, being born again, not by perishable seed, but by the imperishable, by the living and abiding word of God. Yes, the spirit, we're born by the spirit, so the spirit takes the word and applies it to our hearts. But this word, if you are alive in Christ today, was instrumental and powerful in granting that life. So if you turn from the natural revelation saying, uh-oh, I can't escape this God, and I already know that I'm doing some stuff he probably isn't too pleased with, this word gives life to dead souls. Testimony of the Lord is sure. It's trustworthy. That's the concept here. Like a highway sign notifying drivers of winding roads and treacherous conditions ahead, the Torah is providing as a warning, and it's faithful, the dangerous slopes ahead, making wise the simple. You can't help but walk away from looking at the stars and realize how insignificant we are. God has given us a wisdom. We don't need to... Stir up a wisdom on our own. His word gives life to dead souls. His word makes simple people wise. His precepts of the Lord are right. Word for precepts, orders, directions. Much like a road map. They are right. They are trustworthy. Like they will not lead astray. They are accurate. Rejoicing the heart. God's word gives life. And notice, notice its impact upon us. First, it affects and it powerfully works on our soul. Our minds, making the simple wise. Rejoicing the heart. God's word is a delight and a joy to the heart of the one who has been given life by it. 
commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So we've got soul, heart, mind, eyes. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And the concept is like pure light. This is the word by which we see. This is, this is the instruction and the wisdom that, that once souls have been given life and joy, they can see and understand the world around them. The fear of the Lord is clean. That's an interesting title for Scripture, the fear of the Lord. And here it's the concept is this is that which gives fear. The fear of the Lord, according to Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear God, yeah, yeah, you know. Scripture will teach you that fear. Listen to Psalm 31:14. David again writing, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And this fear of God is clean, it purifies. This is, a, this is a term used for ceremonial cleanness, which enables a person to stand before God. When the word has given life to the soul and wisdom to the foolish and become a satisfying joy for the heart, when eyes are open, then they can see so that people fear God, which is another way of saying respond rightly to him, to assume an appropriate attitude of humility, loyalty, and dependence. Take God seriously. Then one is able to stand before God. And this fear, this purity, this cleansing endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Rules is a legal term describing a judge's statement of what should take place. And the point here is this. These are not wishy-washy commandments that are subject to change. But altogether they represent God's righteous standard of what he requires of us. Rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Not some parts, but the entirety. Get this. All of God's word is true. All of God's word is dependable. All of God's word is sure. And all of God's word is able to give life, to give wisdom, as a joy and a delight, to open our eyes so that we can see and understand, to create in us the fear of God which purifies enabling us to stand before him. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then we move on to the appreciation of Scripture. The appreciation of Scripture. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Now think about that and unpack that. How, how much will people do for money, to, to acquire money? How many years of training, education, how much labor will people put in so that they can get a high-paying job or promotion? How much work? I mean, think about it. People will move across country. Yes, yes I know we, we pursue vocation for other reasons as well, although I have never heard of someone turning down a promotion or raise. Think of how much labor and work we go into that. Now contrast that with how much labor and work we spend understanding this word, because what David's saying is if you had the choice between learning how to make a million dollars a year and learning the scriptures. Learning the scriptures is much more to be desired than much, not even regular gold, fine gold, purified, pure gold. Then he compares it to, to the candy of their day, honeycomb, the sweetest thing imaginable to an Israelite. God's word is sweeter, more delightful, tastes better. You know, Peter says a similar thing. And if you're here today and, and, and this sounds strange to you, this delight, this joy in God's word, Peter writes this, encouraging us like newborn infants, 
infants long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it you may grow up in your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. When people ask me, how can I know the scriptures is God's word? Taste and see. Taste and see. Read it. See what you think. See if God's spirit testifies to his word. See if this isn't the most wonderful and beautiful book you've ever read. You don't need to defend a line. Just let a line out of the cage. It'll take care of itself. God's word will not return void. It's sweet, desirable, precious. And also it gives warning and promises reward. Moreover, verse 11, by them your servant is warned and keeping them there is great reward. Scripture is by virtue of being God's law, God's commandment. It's, it's not God's suggestions. It's not his guidelines. It's his law. I mean, we saw it in the titles, his commandment, his precepts, his rules. And what the scripture again and again lays out in a wisdom motif is, is the blessing and the curse. Psalm 1, there's the way of the righteous, there's the way of the wicked. And again and again, the scripture lays out the God of, of who is, the God of the word, says, look, if, if you'll believe me, if you'll trust me, if you'll obey me, things will be good. And if you won't, great, terrible threatenings are made. Just listen to the way the book of Deuteronomy closes. This commandment that I command you today, it is not too hard for you, neither is it far off, it's not in heaven, that you should say, who will ascend to heaven to bring it down to us, that we may hear it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea and bring it to us? Who may hear it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandment of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going across the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing, curse. Choose life. You and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. That you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to them. You read this book, and whether it's on the mouth of Jesus, warning people to flee the wrath to come, promising people life to those who believe in him, the Bible extends God's blessings and his cursings, his wonderful promises of reward and his threats of judgment. And all this then adds up to point three, our right response. How will we respond? First, to the knowledge of God in creation, which is meant to drive us. We need to know more to his word. And then as we read his word, we see its power, and it gives us life, and it opens our eyes, and it delights our heart, and it gives us wisdom. And it's tasty and precious. And precious. Okay, hold on. Hold on. All right. It's tasty and precious. We see these great, great, wonderful promises of reward and these great threatenings for faithlessness. Now, we can respond a couple of ways. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, these are people who, 
in all likelihood, had memorized the entire Old Testament. If you were here for Jason Nightingale, it was impressive seeing a man who'd memorized the book of John. Pharisees wouldn't be impressed. Many of them had memorized not only the Old Testament itself in its entirety, but an entire additional library of rabbinic writings and teachings about the same size. These are people who, in one sense, cherished God's law. And yet, as they read it, they did not respond the way David's heart responded. They responded thinking they were great, thinking they were righteous, thinking they were good. If you read the Bible and you walk away feeling good about yourself, you've not read the Bible very well. I mean, at least not if you haven't pressed it all the way through the gospel and through Christ and who you are. Sure, yes, there's a sense which you can read the Bible and understanding the gospel and understanding Christ's work. Yes, you can rejoice in your standing in Christ. But if you, if you come to the Bible and you are, well, I guess, I guess I am pretty good. You have not read it rightly. That is not the conclusion David comes to. Look, look where his heart turns to immediately. Our right response. He asks God to reveal your hidden sin. Where his thought goes to is this. If this law and these commandments are true, if this is the standard God will judge by, if this is what the sovereign potentates of the universe requires, then what about my sin? What about my failings? Now, most of us are aware of enough of our own sin that we're not usually asking to be aware of more of it. Right? Anyone here? I need to know more of my sin. That's what David asks. Who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults? But you and I both know that every day, without even meaning to, in acts of omission, or just things that rise up in our heart without even contemplating it, the pride, the delight in someone praising you, coveting, all sorts of attitudes of the heart that rise up and dishonor God constantly. And David, amazingly here, wants to be shown these things. Why why on earth would you want to be shown your sin? Why would you ask God, show me? I I don't know all my errors, God. I'm sure there's all sorts of things I do that are displeasing to you. Would you show me those sins? I think there's, there's two reasons David can do that, and there's two reasons we can do that. The first is David clearly is in awe of and loves God. He's in awe of the created world. God's law is delight to him. It tastes sweet. It's more precious than gold. David loves this God of this word, and he wants to please him. Like an obedient child, he's saying, Dad, how can I be a more faithful son to you? Look ahead, though, for the other, the other point. In the final verse, the title that David gives his God, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This isn't, David has no misunderstandings that if you just are faithful to this book, you can do what this book says and then you can be righteous. That was what the Pharisees thought, which is of course impossible, so the Pharisees gave themselves a hand by lowering the standard a bit to something they could do. David needs a redeemer. David needs forgiveness. David needs acquittal. But when you realize that we have a God who will forgive our sins... As 1 John 1, 9 says, if we are confessing our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. If we have a Savior who says, look, bring all your filth and all your dirt and all your uncleanness and all your wickedness and all of your sin and corruption and I will cleanse you, then of course you're trying to find every last little bit of it so the Savior can cleanse you. 
It's as if somebody came to your house and said you want a contest and they will pay off all of your bills. You would be scrambling, not just for your mortgage and your car payment, but for your library fines. You'd be finding everything, wouldn't you? If somebody's going to pay all my debts and pay all my bills, we're getting everything. We're getting that CD club that I signed up for 15 years ago that they keep sending you letters for. Everything. David has a redeemer. And David has promises of redemption. The very fact that he's using God's covenant name implies the, the covenant God made with Abraham. So David knows the one whom he's dealing with. He's serious and he's got laws, but he's also a redeemer. And so David says, because I'm, I'm anxious and excited that you would cleanse me, you would forgive me, because I believe that forgiveness is possible, because I believe that change is possible, because I believe that your word has power to shape me, then shape all of me and show me those areas that you want me to change. It's a very different heart attitude. Most of us want to hide our sin from God as if we could actually do that, as if we're going to fool him and he won't know. David's coming to the light. Show me my hidden faults. Next, ask the Lord be to guard you from willful sin. Now, David's used two categories here, of two types of sin the law refers to, the high-handed sin of rebellion and the unintentional sin. You can turn to Numbers 15 at your leisure and look at those. Two types of sin. First, he asks God to reveal his hidden sin. Next, he asks God, God to guard his heart from willful sin. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Because there are times, even David, this again makes me have some comfort. The man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, implicitly is recognizing there are times that his heart just wants to disobey God. He needs help, he needs grace so that his heart won't turn away from God. Again, the solution isn't pretending that's not the case. I love Jesus all the time, except when I don't, except when I sin. And David says, oh Lord, keep, keep, back, keep back your servant for presumptuous sins, high-handed, willful sins, sins where we look God in the face and say, no, my way. Guard, guard us from that, David says. Let not rule over me. That's a good prayer to ask. Ask God to guard your heart from rebellion. These are the responses to God's revelation of himself. This is how righteous people respond to all that God has revealed of himself. And finally, David offers, David gives us the model here that we should offer to your Redeemer. You should offer to Redeemer the entirety of your life. After asking that God would deal with his sin, reveal his sin, cleanse him of his sin, acquit him of his sin, Guard him from his sin. David then turns using sacrificial language. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. That word be acceptable. Same language used for, for sacrifices that are offered rightly. You know, Nadab and Abihu, they got creative and innovative. They got burned. God, God has told us what to do. This is a response to Psalm 19 and God's rules and statutes. May, in other words, may the thoughts of my heart Words of my mouth be in accordance in keeping with your pattern, your precepts, your rules. It's another way of saying, may my entire life be offered up as a sacrifice to you. I mean, David's zooming in at the smallest possible things, the very thoughts of his heart. Not the, not the things he does, just the thoughts of his heart. Oh God, may the thoughts that I think about today at lunch, on the drive home, oh Lord, Work your word in me so that the very thoughts I think as I 
go about my day are acceptable in accordance with your word. May the words come off my tongue. Again, things that we think are meaningless. Jesus insists not an idle word will be given that will not be given to the count. David is offering up his entire life to his Lord, his rock, and his redeemer. And, that, and that's, that's really the question as we close I want to give to you. Is, is Scripture a chore or a delight? Is Scripture sweet to you? Is Scripture light to you? And the answer, if you're honest, is probably sometimes. That's okay. There are other Psalms that talk about asking God to make us delight in his word. The solution here, if, if it doesn't taste sweet, is not to pretend it does and play along. If this, if this word to you does not seem sweet but confusing, maybe it leaves a sour taste in your mouth, don't, don't pretend it doesn't. But understand that you haven't seen it rightly. You haven't seen it as it is. And you still may need to call upon God that his word would give you that life, would do that work in your heart. Yeah, don't, don't pretend, but seek. Because when, when God's word has done its work in our hearts, it creates that joy, it creates that life, it, that satisfaction. And if you are in Christ, and if you have received the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you do know God by his covenant name as your redeemer and your rock, then as you read God's word, it should do those things. It should produce in you an awareness of your sin. It should produce in you a, a fear of displeasing, but also a desire to live your life for the Lord. That, that's, the, that's the appropriate response to God's revelation in nature, God's revelation in his word, that we, his servants, want to be more faithful. We want to be more pure, and we delight because we can be. His promises enable us to be. It's not God saying, do it on your own strength. David's saying, I need you to cleanse me. I need you to show me my sin. I need you to establish me. I need you to acquit me. Would you do that, God? So that my thoughts and my words and my actions be pleasing to you. That is the right response to God's word. Let's pray that it would be our response as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for how abundantly you have testified to yourself, how resplendent, opulent, abundant is the evidence of your glory and your power. In addition to every leaf and every bird, crying out your glory. You have given us your written word, revealing even more fully who you are, and then you sent your son, the incarnate word, who imaged you perfectly. Lord, you have left so much evidence for yourself, so much testimony. We are without excuse. We cannot unknow what we know. We will be held accountable for it. So Lord, rather than hiding from your word, which cannot be hidden from, would you work in our hearts so that your word would revive our souls, grant us life, heal our wounds, delight our hearts, instruct our minds, enlighten our eyes, give us an appetite for it and for you, give us a delight and a treasuring value of it and for you, so that we, instead of hiding our sins from you, would bring them to you for cleansing, bring them to you for redemption, bring them to you that we might change. Lord, guard our hearts from rebellion, from willful sin. And Lord, work in us so that our thoughts and our words, even as we break now, even as we go get coffee and donuts, and as we drive home, will be acceptable. 
would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.